Some of you are going, maybe the pastor will lose his audio. <laughs> no chance of that. We have been uh, walking through this series about living in the resurrection and how resurrection, resurrection living pertains to us in this life, not just in life after death. And so we've been talking about how Christ died so that our sins might die with him and that we might be made alive in him. I'm reminded that Jesus shared with his uh, followers that he came, that he said he came, that we might have life. And depending on which version you read, we might have it to the full or we might have it abundantly or we might be really, really alive, not just kind of alive. It's interesting to me, in our culture, we've been captivated by this myth of those who are dead but still alive. And so in American culture, we have this, what I would call, this zombie myth. And it shows up in TV shows, and it shows up in films, and it, you, know, you can go all the way back if you think, well, yeah, it's just a couple of TV shows in the last few years. I, for those of us that are this age, it goes all the way back, I think, even beyond that movie, Night of the Living Dead. It's a terrible movie. I mean, in more ways than one. It is a low-budget, poorly acted, terrible movie. But this idea that this captivated us, that people can die and yet still be alive, is somehow terrifying to us. And... Uh, we hear and we think about and we see about zombie apocalypse and some big box office movies have been made off of this concept. Because we can't get away, I think, from the idea that somehow we die, but we're not dead. You know, somehow parts of people are no longer functioning, but they, they haven't completely decayed. And it's scary, and I think in spiritual terms, there's some validity to that. I think in pop culture terms, it kind of goes into places that we don't really want to go. But in Christ, we read that, that we are made alive in him. And so we, we talked uh, last week about how Christ died that our sins might die with him. And the freedom that we gain in being able to be forgiven. And not only forgiven for what we've done in the past, but we get to be resurrected and live in ways that are no longer bound and determined and corrupted by our sin. And so I want to go forward today and we're going to move on into 1 John chapter 3. And see what it means to be alive in Christ. So the, the writer of the epistle says, See how very much our Father loves us, for he calls us his children. And that is what we are. But the people who belong to this world don't recognize that we are God's children because they don't know him. Dear friends, we all are already God's children, but he has not yet shown us what we will be uh, like Sorry, he has not yet shown us what we will be like when Christ appears. But we do know that we will be like him. 
for we will see him as he really is. And all who have this eager expectation will keep themselves pure just as he is pure. Everyone who sins is breaking God's law, for all sin is contrary to the law of God. And you know that Jesus came to take away our sins, and there is no sin in him. Anyone who continues to live in him will not sin, but anyone who keeps on sinning does not know him or understand who he is. Dear children, don't let anyone deceive you about this. When people do what is right, it shows that they are righteous, even as Christ is righteous. In this whole scenario, as we're talking about becoming children of God and then living in him, I want to remind you that uh, there is this sense, again, going back to our pop culture, that there, uh, the, the, the idea that we can be renewed in this life is an impossibility. And anything after death looks worse. Anything that comes after we've set something down and let it just rot and decay there has got to look worse. The resurrection counters that. And so we, we live with a popular culture sentiment that says that we hope for something better, but that something better we hope for is probably impossible. I call it the hoped impossible. We hope for something, but it'll never happen. Now, we can be delusional like a lot of people are and say, you know, I'm going to live my life in such a way that eventually my ship is going to come in. You know, I'm going to live my life in such a way that eventually maybe something really good and miraculous is going to happen and, and, or there will be this kind of a happy accident and all of a sudden all the, all the terrible things in my life will be superseded by this event. Maybe my ship will come in financially or maybe my ship will come in relationally. You know, somebody, some guy or some girl will be standing in line in front or behind me and will fall madly in love as soon as our eyes lock and, and, and that'll be the day. Or, or maybe, you know, the day will happen when my husband or my wife comes home and, and, and they're going to miraculously be changed. Anybody who has thought that I'm going to marry somebody in hopes that they change, you know the disappointment that comes with that. And so we live with this hoped impossible. We hope for something, but it isn't going to really happen. I think we do this every four years in America. Every time we have an election for a new president, we have high hopes. And then when that changes, I don't care who the president is, they always disappoint us. Always disappoint us. So we have this sense in our, in our way of thinking that we have high hopes, but they lead to disappointment and the hoped impossible never takes place. And one of those things that is a hoped impossible is that people could actually be like Jesus. So we go back to the person of Jesus and what he was like, and he was incredibly good, and he changed people's lives, and miracles happened, and, and people's ships came in like clockwork. You know, blind people got to see, and, and lame people got to walk, and lepers had clear skin. 
demonic people were delivered and people even came back to life. And we hoped that there would be people who could be like Jesus, but in our cynicism we go, but that is a hoped impossible. That never really happens. People are like people. A friend of mine likes to say, people are people-ish. And so we live with this hope that is tempered with cynicism. And we then look around us and we see people that actually have given themselves over to evil and do the most horrible things to each other. And we say, we're not even coming close. Because people, once they get power and control and powerful tools, do hideous, hideous things. And people, when they see opportunities to have power, will do horrible things to gain power. And so there are leaders of nations that will abuse and subject their people because they want to hold on to power. There are countries that will go to war because they want what the next country has. Whether it's minerals or wealth or just a seaport. And so we see over and over in history that when people are given more power and given more authority, they tend to be less and less Christ-like. You know the saying, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts absolutely. And as this goes on, when somebody stands up, somebody like me or somebody like you that says, you know what, Christ wants it another way, people can live like Jesus, others look at us and go, if you're that delusional, we can't take you seriously. People are evil. People are bad. Give them power and they do bad things always. And we cannot live like Jesus. It's a hoped impossibility. But we go back to this passage where John is writing and he says to the readers, you know, we are children of God and as we become children of God, things happen to us and and we change, we're being transformed, and as we're being transformed, we no longer live in those ways, and that means things are different. But here's, here's what we live with, that hoped impossibility that looks kind of like the day when your ship comes in. I want you to think about this as a philosophy that appeals to us that has this sense of a magic portal. You know what I mean. You've seen movies or you've played video games or you, you've read books where there's a magic portal that, that suddenly appears and you can go through it and all of a sudden everything changes. Usually you're transported to somewhere else but occasionally you go through the magic portal and you become someone else. And we've seen this in literature, we've seen it in pop culture, that if something would just open up a possibility that we could go through, and as we go through that magic portal, ta-da! Everything is different, and everybody's different. C.S. Lewis did a great job of opening this kind of thinking to us. If you've read those stories, starting with the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe, you guys have probably heard the joke 
A parent caught their child inside the closet. Doors closed and opened the closet. Said, what are you doing in there? And the child said, it's Narnia business. All right, about five of you are awake. You know, this idea that these kids, they snuck into this wardrobe and accidentally went through this portal to a whole other land and everything was different. The beings were different. And in fact, the children that went through, instead of being kids who had been shuffled off to the country in the midst of war without their parents, walked through the portal. And what did they become? Anybody who's read the Chronicles of Narnia? What did Peter and Susan and Lucy, what did they become? Kings and queens. This hoped impossibility that kids who have not yet reached adulthood could step over a threshold and all of a sudden, I'm royalty. I have ability. And I'm going to make a difference in the fate of this reality. And how many of us read those books just riveted to the idea that somebody just like me, a kid, could wield a sword and make a difference. But we look back into life, we come back into our life and say, what this is, there's no magic portal for us to go through, except for we as Christians kind of say, you know, there's this thing that happened. The grave opened up. Christ came out and everything changed. He was dead. He was executed He was pierced, wounded. And he came out and he's alive. And in that scripture that J.C. read for us earlier, we read when he says, come and touch me, I am not a ghost. The transformation is real. It's not an apparition. You're not having a hallucination. There weren't mushrooms in the stew. This is real. Touch me and see. And so it opens this spiritual possibility that there is a way for us to go through and be changed because he went through, he died, made it through the portal, and now he's different. We read in this passage, as as John is writing, he says, you know, we don't fully understand this, we don't know it right now, but we are going to be like him. We're going to be like him. Now there's this sense that there's a moment then where you cross that threshold. You step across and all of a sudden like a magic wand was waved and and carnality and evil and sin is just magically flipped around and you now are sacred and holy and you're a saint. As you look at those words, though, in the original Greek that John used when he's writing this, he he uses this word to be. We will be like him. And this word is, it's it's not only has a a, uh, a tense, it's in the future tense, which we understand. You know, not yet, but but it's coming. It's it's going to happen. I mean, it's, it's over there. It's not in the present. It's a future tense. But in Greek... Not only do we have tenses, but we have mood attached to verbs. And the mood of this word, to be like him, is the future indicative. 
And the future indicative is, this means something that will happen. It is indicated that it will happen. So it's not, it's not about a possibility, it's about a truth. So John says, this is going to happen. And by the word he uses, he's kind of adding, you can count on it. You can be assured it's going to happen. Some of us listened this week to weather forecasts. On the wild week, where we went from, what, 80 degree weather in our state to blizzards. <laughs> and, and these you know, weather forecasters that all of a sudden got all our attention because, you know, we're going we're gonna to have this 50 degree shift in about 48 hours. And I'm one of them. I, I am a person of little faith. Because I was wearing shorts on, what was it, Thursday, Friday? I think it was Friday. And yep, so was Lorelai. Thank you, girl. And I was a believer that they have got it all wrong. Saturday morning was a brutal reality. Boy, they knew what they were talking about. Well, think about John, who's writing to the believers, and he goes, you know... You are becoming like Christ. And faithless people who write back and they go, John, you don't know. You don't know what's going on around me. When people get a little bit of control, it's corrupted and they do bad things. And and even me, I do things that I shouldn't do. And we echo the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans when he says, I know what I should do, but I don't do it. And I know what I should not do, and I end up doing that. And I disappoint myself and I disappoint God and that seems to be the rule of my life. And Paul, of course, says, but that doesn't have to be. And he goes on later to say, should we go on sinning that grace should abound? Should we keep in this cycle of just being people who do the wrong things all the time? And he says, no, by no means. It doesn't have to happen. And John, then going back to what he says, he goes, in fact, it's the opposite as we live with Christ. He changes us. And so we believe that it is happening and we believe in what I call a transformational spirituality. This is one of the things I love about our heritage here. We believe that the power of God visited on us through the person of the Holy Spirit allows and enables and draws us to be transformed to be different to the way we were. And I believe that's the next step in the power of the gospel. It's not just about coming to the cross and dying with Christ, but it's about going through the portal to the next and coming alive in Christ and being truly transformed. And I know, I I share the same sentiments you do. I think, Lord... I would really like to be farther down the road than I am. I'd like to be holier than I am. I'd like to not get mad so easily. I'd like to not have those wounds just show up every time someone says the right word or I see the right thing or I hear that song. 
But John says to us, you know, as we keep living in the light, as we keep doing what is right, it is recognized as righteousness. And that's a change. And that's different. And so we believe in this sense of transformational spirituality where God works with us, he works on us, and he works in us to change what's going on. So the good news for you is no matter where you stand spiritually, God has got more to do. I remember a couple of years ago sitting down in the home of of our beloved patriarchs here in this church, Bruce and Kay Klein. If you don't know Bruce and Kay Klein, hopefully you'll get get to meet Kay sometime before she goes on to heaven. But this goes back to when Bruce was still here among us. And And I sat there in their home and I was talking to Bruce Klein. And I've got to tell you, just like many of you, Bruce Klein, to me, should be canonized in free Methodism. That means he should be given sainthood. I mean, this is a guy that has lived his life for Christ, sacrificed for the benefit of the church, led many, many people into ministry and lives of service of the Lord in different ways and had that great, wonderful, gracious spirit that invited us to do it alongside him. You remember that? And I remember sitting next to Bruce, and here he was, well on in years, who had lived this incredibly holy life. And as I sat there talking to him, and I said, you know, it's a privilege for me to follow after you and to see what you have become and to wonder about the possibility of what God would do with a guy like me. And he stopped me and he said, Nick, he goes, God's still working on me too. And I, you know, afterwards I thought I should have said, where? Because I, I was a little dumbfounded. I was like, for a moment I said, you know, Bruce, what in the world is left in you that is yet to be conformed to the image of Christ. You look like Christ to me. And yet Bruce himself recognized that the Spirit of God was still at work in him. And there were still things yet to be shaped in the image of Christ there. I think that's probably what made him so holy. Is he recognized that God was not done with him. So if that's true for Bruce, if that's true for me, if that's true for you, that God isn't done with us and he is still at work and he's still intervening and shaping our lives, that means that he is changing us even moment by moment. We don't have to wait until a certain threshold. We've already passed through the portal and now the transformation is taking place. Going back to the Chronicles of Narnia, you remember those four kids, you know, they become kings and queens and they rule and they bring peace to Narnia and they set people free and they grow up and then all of a sudden they're back and there's this disappointment. There's this pain that, wait a minute, the glorious story happened in another dimension and now we have to go back to living in this dimension But it changed the kids, didn't it? It changed those kids. And so when they make subsequent journeys to that other world with other people, they're different. They're changed. You see, 
here's what I think. I think even though we've crossed the threshold from those who were condemned to those who are part of the family of Christ, we are still moving every moment with God, either moving closer or farther away. I don't think you could convince me that the spiritual life is a static thing where we just stay put. No, it's about movement, always about movement and staying close to God. One of the things about this that helps me understand how we stay close to God is understanding how you navigate. Now in this day and age, thanks to technology, just about anybody without much training can navigate anywhere. All you need is a cell phone or a GPS, right? In fact, I don't even have to touch my cell phone. I have my cell phone set up because I have a tendency to be a little ADD. I have it set up so that when I'm driving, I can't interact with it very much. Otherwise, when you text me, I will drive off the road thinking about you. And so I have it set up so that it doesn't do that. So if some of you have texted me, some of you have seen from time to time, you get a thing that says, I am currently driving and unavailable. But I also have it set up that I can just say, to my good friend Siri, hey Siri, get me directions to wherever. And I use it even here in Wichita, in, in, in my town, where I'm driving sometime and I wonder about traffic and I wonder, you know, I kind of have an idea where that's at. So I go, you know, hey Siri, find me the closest McDonald's. And Siri goes, no, I can't do that. <laughs> no, she doesn't. But, you know, we can navigate anywhere now, even by our voices. But it wasn't always that way. In fact, there was a time when you had to be a mathematician. There was a time when you had to have significant training because navigation was life and death. And so if you were out on the ocean sailing a wind-blown vessel across the ocean, the only way you had to navigate was by the stars. And during the day, perhaps by the sun. And so they would look at these celestial beings, these stars, the sun, up in the sky, and based off of what they observed and laid out from those little lights, they would determine their course. Now here's the trouble. This is where it gets complicated, because you could look up and go, there's the sun, let's go. Or there's the moon and there's the stars, let's go in that direction. But the trouble is... Those things are moving. Or to be more specific, we're moving. We're in motion. And so those stars don't stay in the same place, and that sun doesn't stay put. It moves around as well. And, and so if we're going to navigate, we've got to be paying attention to things that are not fixed, but they are far. And so we can pay attention to that. I, somebody, a friend of mine recently sent me a, a, a video. It's really a horrible video. But it, it was interesting because he and I had joked about flat earth theory. You know, there are still people out there that believe that this is a flat earth. And there's a guy here in the United States that recently decided he was going to prove it. And he built his own rocket and was going to shoot himself up into space so that he could pr- prove that this was still a flat earth. Have you guys heard about this guy? Yeah. Yeah. About killed himself. And so he shot himself up into space, and it probably broke the law at the same time. And then as he's going up into, into space, you know, figure out that, you know, you think the earth is flat, but there's still this thing called gravity. 
And so here's a guy who's, who's trying to prove something that most of us would just dismiss as being ridiculous right away. And he's trying to prove things about what is moving and what is changing. Trying to navigate across the ocean by the stars is tricky. I'm glad I never had to do it. I would have got lost. And I'm pretty good with directions. Trying to navigate our way through life following Christ is tricky. But it's simpler. It's simpler than using an astrolabe. Because here's the thing. The way Christ navigates us is by learning and leaning on him. He navigates us through the truth of his word. We know that his word is infallible. It will not lead us astray. So scripture is this great resource for us in navigating through life. But there's times when scripture is limited and we go, wait a minute, the Bible doesn't talk about this. And then we're reminded that Jesus said that even after he left, that, that his followers should stay in Jerusalem because another one would come. The comforter would come. This intimate presence of God. Internal presence of God that we can lean on. So this Holy Spirit presence is coming. And now navigating through life is just a matter of a whisper of the heart. And it's hard to explain but when we experience it, it's hard to deny. Once we've heard God, sensed God, felt God move inside of us, it's awfully hard to ignore that, isn't it? And so it's not like looking up at the stars, but it's like listening to someone who is right there. Here's the interesting thing is, when we start to do this together, it becomes remarkable and even miraculous. You see, as the Holy Spirit speaks to you and the Holy Spirit speaks to me, God is incredibly consistent. And so, as we're walking together, it is very seldom that God is going to tell you one thing and speak to me something that is completely different, profoundly different. That doesn't happen very often. In fact, that's probably an exception. And the rule is that when God speaks something to you, he's probably saying something similar or congruous or something that will fit together to me. And he guides us together in community. The Holy Spirit says, I'm going to say this to you. I'm going to say this to you. And as you guys do this together, you're going to go, oh my goodness, God is speaking. God is talking. And we should pay attention. And in fact, to take it a little bit farther, we have a tendency to be dismissive of what the Holy Spirit does, particularly when the Holy Spirit is speaking and moving through someone else. Going back to C.S. Lewis, the writer about the Chronicles of Narnia, he also wrote a lot of other books, and fortunately for us, wrote about philosophy and Christian thinking. And C.S. Lewis says that, you know, if we really, really want to see what God wants us to do, we should be listening to one another because God is at work in each other. But that's awfully humbling. You mean I have to listen to you? But you're, you're fallible. Remember, I go back to that corrupted 
hoped impossible thing. You know, you're going to say things and I'm going to go, uh, uh, I don't think you got that right. But God calls us to have faith in him and not only faith in him removed from us, but to have faith in him present in us. Years ago, I sat in a service from another faith tradition. It was a service in a church of old order Mennonites. I have deep appreciation for Mennonite people and their heritage and for their commitments in life, but especially old order, they live life in some hard ways by choice. But I was there in the service. I'd, invited, I'd been invited to come and be there, and I had some family with me. We went. We had friends there in the service, and, and it, was, it was exciting. It was a little bit different. We sang a cappella with them, and it was fun to sing. And those Mennonite people can sing. And, and then they came to this point where they were receiving a new member, which is not something that is common with the Mennonites, because most old order Mennonites become members by virtue of growing up in community. But this guy had not been in community, ended up working for a Mennonite farmer, and became attracted to their faith and found faith in Jesus Christ among them and was choosing to join their order. And, and that's why I was invited. They said, you've got to see this. You've got to come and see. This guy is joining our Mennonite community. And so I went and we celebrated that with them. And we watched the process of how they identified that here is someone that should be welcomed in. He is part of the family of Christ and he is part of our community of believers here and we should welcome him in. And so people were asked, they were invited to get up and speak for him or against him. And so this young man stood up there kind of off to this side of the congregation because the men sat on this side and the women sat on that side. And he stood kind of over here. And three or four people got up, men and women, and they spoke about their interaction with him. And they talked about what kind of a young man he was and what they've observed of his faith. And one by one, they brought their testimony to a close with this phrase. They said, I find that his spirit agrees with my spirit. And I sat there and I thought, how beautiful is that? That here are people who have walked alongside this young man and have been paying attention, observant of what God is doing in him. And when they see it as a godly thing, they go, I think the Holy Spirit's at work here. You see, in this world, people who are coming under the influence of the Spirit are being built. Paul references this as he says, you know, we are being built together into a temple. We are like stones being laid. But those who are following and pursuing what is corrupt and what is evil are people who are being deconstructed or even destructed. That's why Paul in Romans says the wages of sin is death. It's destruction, it's decay, it's rot. But the gift of God is eternal life, everlasting life. 